Hi, and welcome to How to Ruin Dinner, conversations from the university. I am Mary Trace, your host, with my co-host, Valana Dondina Doolin. And our special guest today is John Matheson. He's in the philosophy department, and I've just asked him to introduce himself. So, Jonathan, will you tell us about your career path and your area of interest? Sure. Uh, Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I always have to get in that I grew up in Canada just because that's a central part of who I am and how I think about things. But uh, in terms of my career path, I got into philosophy uh, as an undergraduate. I started getting excited and interested about thinking about philosophical questions. And uh, from there, I went to graduate school at uh, Wisconsin-Milwaukee and uh, went from there to get a PhD at the University of Rochester. And then, so all my life was in in the cold, uh, and then got a job here at UNF and came down 13 years ago and have been plugging away since. And are you tempted to go back to the cold, or? No, not at all. (laughs) If you asked me that in my first six years here, yes. um, I was climate miserable. Um, but now I have, uh, I'm fully embraced it and I can't imagine shoveling snow ever again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so January yesterday, I think was 75 yeah. or something. It's pretty, it's pretty. I'm full Florida now. It's pretty it's hard great. to say. But. Yeah. Um, well, wait a minute. Could I just go back a little? You said you grew up in Canada. Yes. But does that make you Canadian yes. or are you okay? Well, I didn't know whether you were. Well, it's like a, I mean, my my father's Canadian, my mother's American, so okay. it's a bit of a touchy okay. subject because some people will call me a half breed. Uh, <laughs> but I consider myself both fully Canadian and, and fully American. So all right. Well, one of the reasons we invited you here, you're we're happy to have you, but we're talking this semester about things like cancel culture, and classroom, safe spaces. And that's where you and I originally sort of had our conversation around that idea and what it is and why it's important. And then I texted you and said, well, let's talk about disagreements and informal fallacies. And I get a note back going, I don't like informal fallacies. They are corrosive. I, I'm not sure you used that word, but yeah. that's what happened in the pit of my <laughs> stomach. There was some corrosion going on because I knew you were right and I didn't like it. And then I used those, you know, fallacies as a bludgeon to control conversations, particularly yeah. with my husband, which you claim is my problem and not yours. But <laughs> You know, I thought we could talk about sure. some of that stuff, but I, yep. I thought we should start with your text, okay. which has the brilliant title that you'll have to explain, The Epistemic Significance of Disagreements. Yeah, great. Um, so that actually was a – so that the book was a, um adaptation of my dissertation. So when I was at University of Rochester – um, my central area within philosophy was epistemology, which studies knowledge and rationality. And within there, uh, the topic that kind of grabbed my interest and wrote my dissertation on was the idea of disagreement. And so the basic idea there, or the quest- the central question in the epistemology of disagreement, and it sounds great, it um, does. is just this. It's just 
What is it rational to believe when you find out that someone disagrees with you? And so in particular, that literature is concerned with these somewhat idealized cases of what's called peer disagreement. But when you disagree with someone who you take to be your epistemic peer, they're just as informed as you are, just as open-minded as you are, just as intellectually virtuous as you are. Where do you find these people? <laughs> wait, wait a minute now. Hold on. It does start kind of idealized. But I think the point is, like, let's think about the idealized case, like the lab room experiment, and then extrapolate from that to our everyday cases. Um, but think of the idealized case first. And so imagine that you and I are peers, and so we see ourselves as equals along these lines, and yet we find ourselves disagreeing about some matter. So the question is, once I find out that you, someone who I see as equally likely to be right about this question as I am, disagree with me, what's the consequences for my belief? Can I be rational in holding my belief, or must I reduce my confidence, give up my belief entirely? Um, what, what should happen there? And so I, I defended a view um, that was that's somewhat skeptical that says in cases like that, you should suspend judgment and actually give up your belief. So on all these sort of like really big contentious questions where there's lots of really smart, informed people on both sides of the debate, my view has it that you should not, that no one's really rational in having their own belief on those matters, that we should all be withholding judgment um, because of the controversy. Yeah, but okay, so that's part of the question I had. When you engage with an idea like that, one of the things that – let's just take abortion, for example, because it's contentious yep. and there's lots of points of view. And engaging in those conversations is really important, it seems yep. to me, to develop a compassion, to have a broader – because we all get stuck on some perspective and it's kind of hard to get off that point of view. And so to shift your point of view, it's helpful to have those conversations. But what seems disconcerting about it is then you end up not knowing what you think. Yeah. And that's a really uncomfortable place to yep. sit. Absolutely. And if if you don't have the luxury of sitting with it, how do you move to action, right? So... Yeah, no, lots of uh, really great points there. Um, so, I mean, let me, there's a couple of things I want to touch on. The first is um, the, the discomfort and disagreeing. So one thing I like about philosophy is you really quickly get used to people disagreeing with you because the field is just full of people disagreeing and arguing and whatever you think is mind-numbingly obviously true. There's a whole bunch of philosophers who think that the exact opposite is true. And so... You get used to people disagreeing with you. And I think that's important to be able to acknowledge that, to get a little more comfortable with it, and to, like you said, uh, engage um, in an open-minded manner with those people. And, I mean, on my view, I think you're right, that oftentimes, though, in those situations, you end up losing your reasons to believe what you did, or oftentimes that can happen. And I do think that's an uncomfortable place because yeah. none of us enjoy not knowing the answer, right? We feel a lot of psychological comfort in not just having beliefs, but being fairly certain about our beliefs. Not having that is, uh, it's a kind of, it's being unstable in, in a certain way. And I think it's, it's very uncomfortable. So, I mean, I agree with that. Um, I often though think that's unfortunately our Wait. intellectual lot in life is to be uncomfortably uncertain 
on a lot of these big questions. The other thing you brought up, though, which, which, is which was worst. good, is like, well, then what do you do about it? Because yeah, that's the worst part. You still have to live your life. Um, and like there's there's one, I think, important disanalogy between beliefs and actions is that when it comes to beliefs, you can believe, disbelieve, or suspend judgment, just yes. not take a position. But when it comes to actions, there's not those three options. You do it, you don't do it. There's no like in-between actions. So our hands are forced, so to speak, with actions in the way that they aren't with beliefs. And so that raises a big question. If we should be suspending judgment about these issues or these questions, how do I live my life? Because there's, there's no parallel non-action, right? right? You do it or you don't. And um, <laughs> I'm going to sound like a bro. That's an unfortunate, awful, uncomfortable position to yeah. be in. And so I think there too, there's no easy answers. So how do yeah. how do you live your life in uncertainty where I could be making a mistake this way or I could be making a mistake that way? I think is a difficult position to be in, but also one that we often, I think, find ourselves in. How about when the action is not possible for you? I'm st- Look, I'm stuck on an idea, surprisingly. But I'm thinking about abortion mm-hmm. and people who for whom abortion is never going to be an action that they have to take. So yeah. that's a nice way of saying men and yeah. for the most part, right? Should they not only be suspending judgment, is is there a case to be made that they shouldn't be talking too much about it? Have I gone too yeah. far? Have I swung too far out on that one? I mean, I that mean, is a view that you hear expressed a lot. Um, if you're a man, I don't want to hear your view about abortion. And then when it comes to politics, why should this big group of old white men be decided, deciding how women um, should can and cannot use their bodies? I think there's something is legitimate about those worries, especially when it comes to like the political decision-making, that there should be something more representative there. But I think it goes too far when it's the idea that this belief or this issue doesn't affect you personally, so you aren't permitted to or allowed to have a view about it. Well, and people on either sides of the debate also aren't really talking about the same problem because for women, the question is, um, how can we uh, govern our own bodies? And for people on the other side, it's how do we protect innocent lives? And so I think it you can say that they don't have a right to talk about women and their use of their own bodies. But if you would ask them what they think the prob- the issue at hand is, they wouldn't. It, the, it's not even the same. Like, Well, it's, I mean, I think it's certainly true that there's different emphases on values, mm-hmm. right? So on one side of the debate, there's a greater emphasis placed on the value of bodily autonomy. And on the other end, um, perhaps a greater value on protecting innocent life. Mm-hmm. So there are different focuses, but I, where I maybe disagree is that mm-hmm. those different values still lead to one central question, which is what should or should not be legal or moral in this one instance and whether your primary value is on the one end or the other, I think it's going to come down to, you're still going to end up with a view about this particular action, this particular issue. I I guess what I was trying to get at is that for some people, the action would be interpreted as like murder versus 
abor- abortion. Yeah. Or just abortion. You know what I mean? So, I mean, then, so you are attributing that value. on a, It is still the value of. Well, but, the action that's being taken is one of forbidding that action. You're not personally going to be able to have the abortion, right. but you are acting to forbid anybody else from having it, which you were talking about before, living with that, in that kind of liminal space where you suspend your belief. Not that you don't have a belief, but it seems to me there is a moment where you have to admit, well, I'm never going to have to be affected by this. And yeah. so mm-hmm. in humility and a kind of empathy that should be generated, I think, from conversations uh, that where we have disagreements. Yeah, and I mean... That, that there's a subtlety to recognizing what you're expecting others to do when you yourself will not be affected by it. And then yeah. that should temper the degree to which you... <laughs> force other people to act on your beliefs. Sure. I mean, and I mean, this fits with that. Like, you know, we all have different sort of stakes and different issues. Right. And in some issues, and we my it. stakes could be quite low. Other issues, it could be quite high. And so how my stakes, what my stakes are might affect my judgment. It might give me clarity. It might also cloud yeah. my judgment. Right. It can go that both ways. That distance could work, yeah. yeah, quite helpfully. And so one thing I think that's important um, to acknowledge is that people, so take the abortion issue, people who can get pregnant have a special perspective there. One that I, as someone who can't, can't probably fully appreciate from the outside. So I think what humility calls for is for me to listen um, carefully to people from that other perspective um, to learn more about what things are like when the stakes are more personal than they are for me. So, I, I mean, I've, I'm fully in agreement with that. Although I don't want to dismiss the fact that I know you have five children. Yes. So you have a lot of stake in it. So I don't mean to sure. say that men have no stake in it and, and make that extreme. But it, 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 of, I mean, it, it affects me it, differently in the fact that it's not it's, an option. It's not an action that um, I'm going to have to personally But as a female— your perspective matters, right? Yeah. You're the 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 other side of it. I'm engaged with you know my husband and having children, and so it's the conversation is important for me to listen to for as a female to engage with the other point of view. So I didn't want to make mm-hmm. it sound like I didn't think men had any stake yeah. in the game. They have a lot of stake in sure. in the game, but you know there is that interesting moment of low stakes commitment sometimes it seems to me in certain political discourses become outsized in their importance yeah. and their kind of um impact on what we as a society are going to sure. do and um maybe one way I'd put that is like when the stakes don't affect me I don't but I think yeah. there's a worry that I can be more flippant about the issue, right? Because it's not the the degree to which it's not going to affect me. I don't have that reason to care about it. I may have right. other reasons. Right. Um, so I mean, I think that's important to acknowledge. I I might be flippant about it, not me, but someone might be yes. flippant about it because it doesn't affect them. I just would the one part that you start. We started this question with is like what I want to resist is for that reason. Is there something? inappropriate about 
a person like that having a view about the issue in question? That's where yeah, I think not no. so much having a view, but having the right to act on it. I was a distinction I want to make. So, you know, if when we're talking about yeah. the, the people that get to make the laws around abortion, when their stakes are low, and they're going to be acting on and enforcing laws, and we started around that question of acting and the uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? When they're they're going to act in ways that force others who disagree with them, they're going to impose actions on those people. That's where, to me, it gets really slippery. You can have whatever opinion you want. We can have a discussion on it. But when it moves to that action, that, to me, is where the low stakes seem to matter more. But where is the obligation? Is the obligation in the legal system to... Yeah, thank God I don't have to answer that, do I? Well, no, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Like, where, how do we fix that then by ensuring that we have a more diverse body of people who are making decisions? Yeah, yeah I think that's helpful. But I mean, so... I, I just I, think I was going back to that significance of disagreement. It's yeah. a question that seems to me legitimate that but, comes up from But I guess I, I worry about, like, generalizing your worry. So, I mean, think, like, I'm never going to be a child. Like, that's yes. gone. Um, but I still think I can have views about children, what children should and should not be allowed to do, even legally. And if I was a lawmaker, I think I, yeah. I, it would be yeah. fine for me to pass laws for and against what kids can do, even though— those laws will never affect me because right. I'm now not a minor. And so there's, there's no, what I am enacting would never, will never have a direct impact on my life. So that's where I think right. we, we don't want to make it just like, well, if it's not going to directly right. impact you, you have, you can't force anyone else to do anything. It's probably too strong, but I mean, it's at least, I think it should be a red flag for us, right? Like if I know this isn't going to impact me, that's, reason to be more cautious, both from my perspective and for other people thinking about my perspective, that maybe, you know, yeah. we should pump the brakes here at least. Yeah, especially, well, I guess what got me thinking about that is when you come down on the side of suspending mm-hmm. um, your judgment and what you can fully know, that's what sort of Well, here's helps. where I'm, I might get out of that position, because if okay. I'm suspending judgment about these things, I, sh- I certainly won't be enacting legislation to prevent it, right? Right. So, um, you know, if I think, you know, just to change the, to make it a little less kind of, but think about like whether eating meat's permissible or not, I think, oh, maybe I should suspend judgment about that. If I'm going to suspend judgment about it, though, I'm certainly not going to outlaw the eating of meat or require the eating of meat. And so there's a sense in which um, my suspension doesn't, isn't going to lead me to that problem. But there's still the question, like you said, but I still have to eat. Yeah. And so what am I going to eat? And there's no like, there's no, there's no third option. Either I'm going to eat meat or I'm not going to eat meat. And I have yeah. to live my life a certain way. Um, and I think it, it is tricky when you're left in the, the sort of space where it's not clear what the right thing to do is. Yeah. And the, the disagreements can help us to some degree sort information out. Sure. And that to get to this conversation we were having or or started or should be starting to have is what should we be doing 
at the university level around having conversations and this idea of safe spaces. And how do you think about the ethos of your classroom and trigger warnings and you yeah. know just how do you set up a, a, a atmosphere of I'm going to say inquisition, but that sounds yeah. so loaded. <laughs> sounds violent. Yes, it yeah. does. But you know what I mean, of, yeah. of having discussions where questions are asked and people should have, you know, the – well, I won't answer it for you. Yeah. I just realized I was starting to well, answer my I mean, own I question. Think it's, a, it's a tough question and it's a, a balancing act. So, I mean, here's here's the way – I guess I think of it and I don't want to say like, and I have it all figured out and this is definitely the way that everyone should be running their classroom or having their conversations. Um, but the way I think of it is that, um, engaging with the opinions of others can kind of go wrong in two directions. So it can go wrong on the one hand, if it results in just name calling and belittling the other person, angry attacks and attacking their character, like that's clearly gone wrong. But where I think it also goes wrong is in sort of like a, I'm going to say it kind of bad, but like a mindless agreement where no matter what the person says, yes, I agree. I a hundred percent, um, I'm on your side. And also the person who disagreed with you, yes, I'm a hundred percent on their side as well. Um, so I think if we're just going to agree with what everyone says, that's misses it too. So where I like to say is like the healthy, intellectually healthy middle ground is one where we can critically engage with each other. And I think like to really respect the person you're thinking with, you have to be willing to challenge their ideas. The, the kind of analogy I use is, is you're, if you're telling a story to your friend and they're just kind of like nodding and saying, yeah, 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 the whole time, they aren't appreciating and engaging with you in the same way where they might push back. Well, are you sure that's exactly what happened? Or what about this perspective? That sort of challenging isn't like belittling them as a person and it's showing that you take their perspective seriously, but it's still critical. It's still thinking hard about what we should end up thinking at the end of the day. So that's what I kind of like, that's the vision of what I want to have happen with these conversations is that people feel comfortable asking the questions. People feel comfortable raising potential answers where it could be that you bring out forward an answer and it stinks. It's awful. And you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe that came to my head. It has terrible consequences. Okay, fine. But we figured that out. Right. Uh, and so it's fine. And it's the idea that's a bad idea, not you. Yeah. Not you for bringing it forward. We all know you're a nice person who we've been hanging out with this whole semester. <laughs> and so it's. I want there to be a safe space in the way of, like, let's play with our ideas. Let's try them out. We might find out that some are terrible. Like, it turns out that would lead to this awful action or this would, it would permit. Okay, great. So now we know that. But we wouldn't have known that if we didn't, like, think about it together. And so I want people to feel comfortable trying out their ideas. And that often comes with failure. I mean, the same way that trying to, learning how to ride a bike starts with a whole bunch of crashes. Um, learning to think about some issues is going to take a whole bunch of missteps. Um, and there, I think, too, it requires giving a little bit of charity to each other. Like, people are going to make missteps. They may say something that's not quite correct, or they may say something that might offend someone else. I think we have to be careful to think about their intention. Like, it's one thing to be like, I'm here to like get at you and tear you down as a person versus 
here's a possible answer. Let's think about it. It turns out that it, you know, it's not good or whatever. That's fine. But we know that now. It was still a, a worthwhile exercise to get there. Why is it so painful when people disagree with us? It, it's really yeah. it's really painful. And, and also, how do we mitigate that? that and how do we stop thinking, yeah, thinking, I guess, conflating the things that we believe with, like, or the validity of the things we believe with ourselves, our yeah. own values. You know? Well, I think that's part of the problem is disentangling mm-hmm. what's up for debate, me mm-hmm. as a person versus, like, this idea or this belief that I have. And those do get intermingled because a lot of those beliefs are about our own identities. And so it's mm-hmm. not like there's some nice, neat, clean distinction where none of my beliefs will affect me and how I think about myself. So it's tricky. Um, I think thinking about your intention matters. But why does I think disagreements uncomfortable because it shows that one of us is wrong and it could have been me. So, I mean, I think we all know deep down that our beliefs might be wrong, that we're not like perfect thinkers. But when I find out that you disagree with me, that makes that possibility much more salient. right? Because now we know. Someone has gotten it wrong. So, I mean, take take the innocent case of, like, math. No one really cares about Mm. math. So anytime you do a math problem, you know you could get it wrong. But if you and your friend both do the same math problem and get different answers, now you know one of you did get it wrong. And so now you get worried, well, was it me? Was it them? And there's a lot more. Yeah, your ego is on the line because your fallibility is sort of, like, made more salient. I think, like, with the issues... Like the moral issues, much more quickly, we're like, well, that's that person. They got it wrong. Right. Whereas in the math case, we're a little bit more likely to be like, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, if you're just as good at math as I am, then it seems, you know, egotistical of me to be like, well, you've obviously done the problem wrong since you got a, you got a different answer than I did. Right. But in math, too, though, there is an answer. Yes. And, and otherwise, you know, with other things, there, there isn't. And well, really that's boy. that's where <laughs> I would disagree. Oh, good. So, oh, you think so I think there's answers? an answer. I saw what I like about philosophical questions is that I think there are answers. I just think they're incredibly hard to find answers. And so I think for a lot of these questions, we don't know the answers, but that doesn't mean that there aren't answers. So I think about philosophical debates kind of along the same lines as like scientific questions that are at like the boundaries of our knowledge. So whether there's life on other planets or what the quantum world is like, I don't know. We don't, we don't know as a society, but we think there are answers. We just don't have the tools to figure them out yet. I think the same thing. So whether we're talking about abortion or eating meat or God's existence, all that, there are answers to those questions. Like they're hard to figure out. Well, do we know the answers? On my view, we don't know the answers, but there are still answers. And I think, it's Waiting important to, to be discovered. Yeah, maybe we never get the, there, right. but I think it's important. It's important to think that there are answers to even make our inquiry make sense. Mm-hmm. Right? If there's not an answer out there to be found, then why are we talking about it? Right? The way I think about it is like we have different perspectives. We're trying to bring them together to figure things out. Will we get there? Often, I think probably not. But like that's that collaborative enterprise of. Let's bring our heads together, our perspectives, our backgrounds together. And listening to our different points of view, we're most likely to figure out the answer. But, like, here's the kind of other view. is like it's, 
you know, I know my truth and my truth is, is mine and it's right. If that's my view, then I have no reason to talk to anybody else. Like what's my, what reason do I have to talk to you about abortion or eating meat? I have my, I have, right. it. it's just me and I got it all by myself. So I think that view kind of like might be motivated by a kind of tolerance and respect for others. But in the end, I think it falls short. Like the, the way to actually better capture why we should listen to each other and be humble about our own views is because there is an answer out there that we're all trying to figure out together. Well, do you think that it's incumbent on anyone with a belief, everyone with a belief, to engage in questions about it? Right? Are we... Yeah, so if you have a belief, you should be open to people questioning it. Yes, that's kind of what I'm asking. And you know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of the preachers on the green. And Mm -hmm. for those who have not been on the campus here, we often have preachers who um, are quite— Not lately, uh, At the beginning of the semester— Somebody did, like, physically assault one of them recently. Yeah, I think he kicked him or punched him. I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Could Um, be the reason for their— for the, but but they seem to be um, strongly holding these mm-hmm. beliefs, but and are speaking to the crowds or the bypassers, but not genuinely engaged in conversation yeah. or or um, interested in conversation. They're doing something else. Yeah, and I guess I'm I'm asking you: Is it your position that anybody that has a belief? also has an obligation in some way to be engaged in a conversation around them because often they can't be known, right? There's no certitude. Even if the truth is out there, Mm -hmm. right, I I can go along with that, but you don't possess that certitude. Mm -hmm. On almost anything, unless we go back to math, right, (laughs) or the laws of physics, maybe, maybe. So, so like, I mean, the... The preachers on the green, what are they doing? I don't I, I find that activity entirely bizarre because, I mean, I do think if your ultimate goal was to convince people of your view, it would happen by way of a conversation, right. which is not what's happening. No, it's antagonization. So it's, yeah. So it's yeah. very, I mean. I have the answer to this, by the way, when you're finished. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that that's much more something performative than it is actual mm-hmm. inquiry. Um, but in terms of. Me, I mean, I think that's that's a nice question. I mean, I I think if I have a belief, I'm committed to thinking it's true. And I want right. my beliefs to be true. Right. I don't want to have false beliefs. And so my love of the truth should open me up to questions about my beliefs, whatever they are. Because I mean, if I'm wrong, and if my beliefs are true, questions aren't going to make them untrue. Right. There's no questioning that's going to change the truth of my beliefs. Um, but if my beliefs are false thinking about them and having discussion about them might show me that they're false. Right. So I'm yeah, kind of the view like we shouldn't be scared we shouldn't be scared of the truth. And so in some sense I think, yeah, it's all fair game because we want to have true beliefs and the true ones aren't gonna mislead us. Yeah, just to get us back to that safe space question, yeah. right? That's what we're trying to engender. Is that, and you said it so well there, the, the, the truth is out there, 
the truth is to be discovered. We're committed to truth. And so when things turn out to be more complex, I'm not even going to say wrong, right, that you have false beliefs, but if you discover they're more complex than you thought, that your beliefs are maybe uh, rooted in something other than evidence, all of that should be reassuring in so far as, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting closer mm-hmm. to understanding and truth. And um, so in creating a safe space, it seems incumbent on us to create spaces where, like you said, mistakes can be made. But real kind of difficult questions can be asked and personal um, experiences can be reviewed. Yeah. And, I mean, and, here's something even stronger that I think I might think is true. This kind of okay. goes back uh, to Mill, which is not only should you be open to being questioned, but to really understand your own beliefs, you have to understand the opposite. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to understand why people who disagree with you do. Until you can sort of understand their reasoning, there's something lacking in your own belief. You don't fully appreciate what you believe until you understand what it's not and why those who disagree with you don't have that belief. So that even puts something, I think, a stronger obligation, which is not just a sort of what could be passive openness to questions. So you, I might think like, well, yeah, I'm open, you know, I'm open to talk to anyone who talks to me, but I'm not going to talk to anybody. Like, <laughs> and no, as it turns out, no one wants to talk to me, so I'm fine. Um, but like the idea of like, well, no, I, not only do I want to be open, but I also want to understand. Like, I know that there are people who disagree with me about nearly everything. And so, like, the idea, like, I want to understand why they think what they do. And I think that's an important thing for me to do, even just as someone who's committed to whatever belief it is. Yeah, I think that, that cultivates respect and community. And I think that um, that is something that, people should I think that's like a um I don't know I think that that that's like an ethos that the university should I specifically like within the university space I don't know how you think about these things but like I don't know yeah I mean I think this I mean this is our I don't I keep using like the the play analogy but this is kind of like our playground of ideas like what Mm -hmm. better place is there to try out ideas and to um, think about things from different perspectives. You're you're probably never going to be surrounded with more people with different perspectives than you are when you're at university. Um, and you're not going to be like all thinking about unified issues, right? Because how often in your ordinary life are you all thinking about the same thing? You're, you're thinking about things relevant to your own life. So there's that kind of like focus and there's diverse perspectives. And I think, yeah, this should be a know, a kind of training ground for helping us to get better at thinking about things and thinking about hard issues when we, that's something we need to do because like you said, disagreement makes us uncomfortable. We don't like it. Um, and so given our sort of aversion to it, um, we're not going to escape it. It's not that we're never going to encounter people that disagree with us. And so learning how to navigate those disagreements, I think in fruitful ways, learning how to better understand people who do disagree with us. This, you know, what better? It sounds like I'm, <laughs> I'm like being a big university supporter. I mean, which I am, but like what better place to do that than here? Like this, this should be a, this should be a place where that can happen. 
Can I shift our conversation a little bit um, to talk about conspiracy theories, which is a place that I think is interesting um, for a lot of reasons, of course. And I wonder what philosophers have to say. I think psychologists have had a lot to say just about how humans – you know, like conspiracies, they tend to make for neat explanations. They tend to clarify our identity and they're good for group formation. Mm -hmm. So I think psychologists have had really interesting and helpful things to say about that. But I wonder what you think philosophers have to add to that conversation. Yeah. So that's actually becoming a, a bigger topic in philosophy. You might wonder why. Why, mm-hmm. why are people <laughs> suddenly interested be? in conspiracy yeah. theories more these days? Surprising. Um, but yeah, it's actually been a focus more in philosophy. So a lot of the – so right. I mean the psychologists, they own the questions about why. Like why, why are we attracted to this? What's the sort of like psychological um, impulse Benefits. that draws us to this? The philosophical questions tend to be focused more on, like, even just what is a conspiracy theory. That's a hard question. That is. Um, And so, I mean, there's lots of different views about what What we should even count as a conspiracy theory. Yeah, does religion count as a conspiracy theory? Does political identity, Mm -hmm. you know, party? Well, and here's a related question, then, is can it be rational to believe a conspiracy theory? So it depends on what you think a conspiracy theory is. I mean, I don't know which of those questions you answer First, but they I mean they're related. But mm-hmm. I mean, one question is: Is it ever rational to believe a conspiracy theory? So some people want their account of a conspiracy theory to just rule out. Well, anyone who has one of those is irrational. But I mean, at the time, there have been there have been small, neat, unified against the received view things that have been true. And mm-hmm. um, do those still count as conspiracy theories or not? I, don't, I mean, so those are the, I mean, those I take to be the, the philosophical questions. What should count as a conspiracy theory? And under what conditions, if any, is it rational to believe one? Could your, could your evidence support a view like that? Yeah, that's, and, and it seems to me like with a lot of human endeavors, there can be pieces that you have strong evidence for. But when put into an entire system, they, the system you've placed that information in could be corrupting good evidence. It could or be. true evidence. But, it, but, it, but I mean, but, conspiracies happen. Conspiracies like, like So sometimes yeah. people conspire and they do and something it and it's covered up. And so like it's not like in virtue of that it can't be true. Right. And it's not in virtue of that I think probably it can't ever be rational to believe. Because I mean looking back at history we can now say that we know certain – conspiracies happened or didn't happen. Right. Um, the question that's harder from is like from the inside without that sort of like benefit of hindsight, what can it be rational for us to think? And I mean, I think that's difficult. I mean, a related question too is should we engage them at all? So, I mean, here's where you can put some pressure back on the sort of like pro open-minded discussion view that we were kind of all advocating is, you know, when's the last time we had a, Flat Earther uh, give a talk at UNF. I mean, I don't know, probably not. Pro- probably yeah. never. <laughs> yeah. um, and why not? Well, I mean, there's, I think on the one hand, there's lots of reasons why you can say why not. Like, well, the Earth's not flat for one, <laughs> and uh, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to legitimize 
individuals who have those views by giving them, say, our plot, the platform of UNF to um, yeah. espouse a view. But at the same time, um, there are flat earthers. And so for all of us non-flat earthers or – I don't know, what are we, sphere, 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 spheres? Uh, I mean, it'd be helpful for us to under, to better understand why the flat earthers think the flat earth thing. What can we say? Like, well, they don't have any reasons that they right. cite in favor of the view. They have some incredibly complicated reasons that they right. say that I don't even, that I don't even understand. Like, so would it help me to be able to understand their reasoning better? I think in some sense, yeah, it would be. Um, now, it wouldn't be like I've find out something new in terms of like, well, now I know the shape of the hurt. Now, I mean, I feel like I got that figured out, but it, I could still, I think, benefit from that conversation by better understanding why someone else who disagrees with me thinks what they think. Yeah. It becomes hard to distinguish sometimes, you know, between what is pseudoscience and what is yeah. legitimate science, especially when you are not an expert in that field mm -hmm. and there's technical language and high-level math being thrown yeah. around. And so you as the person uh, with limited knowledge, but a, a basic in education where you accept, you know. But, I mean, here, here's the, the danger there, too, is like, um, so I'm not saying some things aren't real science and pseudoscience. Those, I mean, those are just legitimate distinctions. But when we, like, or whoever, so neatly categorize something, well, that's pseudoscience. We don't have to worry about We don't talk about that. Yeah then I think we all just kind of shut our brains off regarding that. And then we're at a disadvantage. I mean, so I think that that happens, I mean, in a, in a way, you know, I'm, I'm less worried about it with the shape of the earth because, right. I mean, I but like when it comes to certain say moral, moral views, there might be a, a moral view that we all, uh, we all agree about. And so we're like, well, anyone who disagrees with that, they're whatever, they're, they're a terrible person. And so we no longer, think about our reasons for that moral view. It's just like, well, that's right. that's just the thing that anyone that we like thinks. And so we think the same thing. And we thing. can lose the rationale for those exactly. moral views. And, We're in a worse and position. Act, and act in a way that then becomes um, inconsistent and incoherent yeah. because we haven't done the work to establish yeah. Those norms, it becomes merely tradition. Yeah, and when you and run you up, do, to, run right, into someone who disagrees yeah. with you, which you will, you you can't you don't know what to say position. because yeah. you've just that's what everyone I've known or liked has said. But we know that's not a reason to think that it's true. So I mean, yeah. that's and I think another important advantage of like thinking about our views, even our most cherished views, to like open them up for rational scrutiny. Think hard about what reasons they have. For them, think hard about what possible reasons people could have against them. You know, do the opposition put its best foot forward too, to again better even understand our own position. Um, I know you're the uh, what's your what's the title? I'm not sure of now. We're all fumbling around words, but um, the director of the ethics bowl or the yeah, well, coordinator <laughs> or the captain of the <laughs> what what yeah. is your title? Well, I have a couple of different roles. So, um I'm the just the coach of UNF's oh, ethics bowl team. Yes. But then I also organize the First Coast Ethics Bowl, which is a high school ethics bowl. So, I have two roles in kind of like two different spheres. So, collegiate coach, 
high school organizer. Okay, and what, do you want to? Yeah, you want to tell yeah. us what that is? In- so ethics bowl. I mean, I'm a I'm a big believer in it, and for a lot of the reasons that we're right. we're, we're talking about. But ethics bowl is a debate like competition where students think. I'm going to give you like the stock in it. Okay, both good. critically and collaboratively about complex ethical issues. So you have a team of students, usually it's about five, who have to dissect some complicated moral case. Usually they're quite contemporary, cutting-edge issues. Um, And so you have to navigate that issue as a team and come to one answer as a team that you're going to defend. Obviously, when you have five perspectives, you are often going to not agree about the answer to that question, and so part of it's sort of like being able to tease out your different perspectives, the different values in play, but then through some sort of like compromise and negotiation, find a position that as a team you can feel good about defending as your your team's view. And then and when it comes to the big competition, uh, what happens is these different teams will discuss these different cases. A team will present their case and other teams will raise objections, they'll respond, there'll be Q&A and stuff like that. Um, but what I think is really great about it is it gives you a chance to think critically and slowly about tough ethical issues. And what I like about it is that they, they aren't questions like, is abortion, should abortion be legal? Because everyone has a view about that. I mean, everyone's kind of like, they know what team they're on, they're in it. Yeah. Um, but a lot of these are going to be much more nuanced and careful. So, like, just this one just came to my head. But, like, for instance, Florida just had a, a regulation that you're no longer allowed to own green iguanas. But for the people who already own green iguanas, they're allowed to keep them. But no new ones because there's been enough irresponsible owners that's led to all these problems. So there's a question about is that fair is that you know is that a is that a fair law and no one i take it comes into our <laughs> means like well you know i'm a, i have a definite yeah. team view about uh iguana ownership um and so when you're kind of given this like novel case you can kind of think i think more clearly and carefully about it than you can with all these more politically charged ones in terms of like all right let's how would we go about figuring out the answer here. What are the sort of values that are relevant? What are the stakes? Who's being affected here? What are the reasons in favor and against? What's the best thing that can be said on behalf of these different views? And then trying to come to some sort of a answer that you can defend. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I wonder if you think that that competitive format is a successful way yeah. to do that. I The formatting of it, and I know this is kind of procedural, but I do think the format is important. It's, I mean, it's tricky because, I mean, in some sense you think like, well, we should be collaborative inquirers yeah. and just discuss yeah. it. And, I mean, I think in some sense, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's kind of weird to have people, in this case there's judges who are assigning points to different teams based on different parts. Um, and so... And we walk away with a winner. And, like, very, right, very rarely right. you're like, oh, I got the, <laughs> I got the higher score, so I won that one. Um, so, I mean, the competition aspect of it is in some sense, I think, non-ideal. But I think it's still important because it, otherwise I think it's hard to kind of, like, unify the discussion, right? Mm-hmm. You're kind of given the, like, 
parameters of what's going on. Like obviously most of our discussions don't just take place in a one hour block. Right. right. So we well, can that's... think about this for a longer time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I, I mean, I'm not advocating for keeping a little score sheet with you at all times. And whenever you <laughs> get into like a discussion, start uh, giving points and demerits. But uh, there are benefits in terms of like it at least sort of like unifying the conversation, I think, in this. And context. it builds excitement. Sure. You got to say that competition. Well, you care. You care because yeah, you, you care. Yeah. And, and maybe you care about green iguanas, which you would never care yeah. about. So I think for the participants, there are a lot of skills there yep. to learn. And yet, competition around ideas and promoting a, an, an aspect of, you know, I'm holding up my fist, pugilistic, <laughs> uh, you know, interactions is, yeah, not what we're really looking for in sure. safe space, yeah. <laughs> particularly. Yeah. Well, do you think that that setting um, of, do you think that controversy gives a, like provides a bias for making people more eagerly either embrace a belief or reject a belief? Um, well, I mean, I th- I think in a couple senses, maybe if I'm getting right. So, I mean, there are some people who like love just controversial views. And so Mm -hmm. they'll take the fact that a view is controversial or like most people dismiss it as like an asset to them. They love to embrace and defend that view. Just see how far they can get away with it. I think, um, so I mean, I think there's a certain type of person or personality that's drawn to controversy in that sense. But in, just in terms of like that's a hard, it's a hard issue. I mean, so I think mm-hmm. the goal in the ethics bowl is to get cases where like they're controversial in the sense of like, look, there's a lot that can be said on both of these issues, right? So it's not like something that's so black and white that like it's obvious. Um, but there can be you know reasoned uh, debate about it, and so I think that brings up or helps develop other skills too when it turns like. I don't want to just like be laying out all the reasons in favor. One important critical part of your presentation is to be thinking about the best things that can be said against your view to be thinking about the best that can be said from the opposing side, not just your own perspective. And I think that's easiest to do when the issue is controversial, right? When that's something where you can see, you know, you can see, lots of reasons in favor of both the views when it's something like, you know, what what, what are your views about genocide? It's a little bit harder to be like, well, I'm pretty strongly against it, but have you thought about, and like, it's a lot harder to sort of like really in an honest way put forward the, the, the best sort of objections in that sense. So that's where I think controversy kind of lends itself um, in that way. I mean, maybe I'll throw this in there too. So like, that's one thing I, I like to do in a lot of my classes too is, um, often we'll kind of like start by debating-ish, uh, somewhat meaningless questions like like the how many holes does a straw have or is a hot dog a sandwich or is water wet? Just because I like people to get used to disagreeing with each other and seeing that like, okay, maybe you have a view about that. Maybe you've never cared about it. But like there's things you can say for it and there's things you can say on the opposite end. And okay, it's maybe more interesting than you thought of originally. Um, and you can see how people will disagree with you and that they're still nice, rational people. And I think 
I mean, in the end, we don't really care about those things, but the idea is like, I want that to like model the same sort of discussions we can have about the, the heavier, weightier things. Like, like, okay, there's things we can say for, things we can say against. We're not all going to agree. You know, for anything interesting, the class is going to be fairly divided, but we can still, you know, learn something about ourselves and the issue in that process. Even if at the end of the day, we have to say, well, man, that's a lot that's a lot more complicated than I thought. Maybe I don't know what's going on there, which yeah. circling back to the, where we started, that's, that's the view that I, that I kind of like to cheer for. Yeah. Mm. Well, okay. Let's wrap up a, a little bit here. I'm, you're going to have to walk me through your objection to informal fallacy. fallacies. And let me defend myself first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say they're helpful insofar as they allow you to i can see him he's 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 looking up these are my judgmental eyes he's okay so he, he i could i would argue that they allow you to keep guardrails up so that arguments don't veer off into attacks that sure. are unsupported or that are, you know, if it's a straw man argument, a misrepresentation, and it's a kind of shorthand to say, hey, hold on. Mm-hmm. That's that's not what I said. Let's get back to the conversation. Yeah. So they, I think they're useful as guardrails. Yeah. Have I used them as a bludgeon before? Sure. Yeah. Guilty. But. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I agree. So, I mean, like most tools. They don't only have bad uses, right? So there, there are good uses, but I think what I would ask is when they're used most often, is it in the fruitful way or the counterproductive way? And, you know, as someone who's taught and designed a lot of like logic and informal reasoning, critical thinking classes, it's something I've thought about. Cause I mean, most critical thinking courses are primarily designed around there's this list of fallacies. You got to learn these, learn this Latin. Um, but what I see happening is intellectual bullying. And so there's people who want to... Red herring. Red herring. <laughs> see, exactly. And then what you see is someone just, you know, throws that charge out. And then uh, the other person's like, well, I don't know what the hell that is. And so I'm just going to shut hey, up listen, and walk when away. When you're 5'3". You know, you you to, whatever means you necessary. Know what? yeah. When you're six three, you can do whatever you want yeah. and get away with it. But some of us need sharper implements. Yeah. You know. I, I mean, okay. <laughs> so I mean, you're right that they can have a good purpose. I, I guess I see them being abused more often than not, and used as a kind of argument conversation stopper, not as like a collaborative. Let's get back to doing what we were really here for, but. uh I'm smarter than you. You need to stop talking. Well, okay, getting away from that. How about the learning of them? Do, yeah, no. Should we be learning them so we recognize them and don't do it ourselves? No. Uh, <laughs> so here, I mean, you don't even want me to 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 to. No, tear those pages my- out. No. <laughs> here, I mean, so here, I guess here's what I think. They, there's two problems. There's two problems in reasoning. And everything can be boiled down to these two. Oh, I'm writing this okay. down. I, I thought they were and, more and than not, that. And right? neither, neither one involves Latin or any, oh, or any yeah, fish or anything like that. It's all good. <laughs> so is, is what you said true? Mm-hmm. So that's one. Is it true? And 
does it support the conclusion? So if the argument someone's giving or the reason is not good, it's for one of two reasons. What they said wasn't true right? or what they said didn't support the conclusion. And so I think everything, every fallacy you want to name can be rephrased into one of those two problems. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about those problems. And I think neither of those problems end the conversation. It's like, why is that true? Okay, now we have a conversation. Well, I think that supports your conclusion. Now we have a conversation. But neither one's like being used as like a a, a bully stick, I think, (laughs) against the other. (laughs) So, I mean, and I'm not saying that like, that's the right way to think of it. And anyone who thinks obvious is a, you know, is an idiot or something. I just think that's. Or a bully. Yeah. Or I a bully. Saying I'm not bully. saying you're a bully necessarily. <laughs> you're too nice of a person, but uh, there's a caution. There's a, there's uh, a worry there. And so I think better to reframe in terms of this more, I think, collaborative questions, which is, you know, why I think that's true or why I think that supports your conclusion. And I don't think, I think if you have those two questions or, or issues, anything you wanted to do with fallacies, you can do with those with instead. Those instead. And shorthand. Okay, that was pretty good. I, I guess I can't argue with that <laughs> too much, but oh, I'll have to find new ways of turning those into weapons. I don't know if I can do it, but yeah. Yeah. I, well, I mean... I, I And that, that question, is it true, gets to evidence and and that's you know that's often where someone will see they lack evidence well yeah and and yourself and what i don't want to say is that those are easy questions to answer so they aren't but they are at least focusing the conversation where we're talking about the same thing right Right. so i mean i think if i you know if i just said that's an ad hominem (laughs) and then uh for most people it's like yeah. Uh, okay. I don't know what to do. I don't know yeah. what to do with that. Where do we go from here? Yeah. Um, which, you know, so I think it's going to conversation then is not, not productive. It's not going anywhere. Whereas right. if you said, well, why, why believe what, you know, why believe what that person said? Um, you know, are they a trustworthy source? Are they an expert? Is that just someone you read on some blog or something like, like let's think about the reasons why we should accept or not accept what was said or whether it really supports the conclusion. Is better. Yes. Oh, I like that answer. Darn it. Darn it, John. So I just want to give a friendlier tool that's less oh, okay. that's less prone to bully <laughs> behavior. Though I'm not accusing you of anything. Uh, less fun. I'm admitting it. How about that? And I've it, already admitted and it. And it's perfectly fine. It. I mean, so I mean, it's perfectly fine in some contexts. You'd be like, okay, that we want this to be a little more combative of a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, fine. But I mean, I think... In general. In general, there's that worry, right? And yeah. so I, what I'm always picturing is like the, you know, the first year philosophy major who's now been equipped with all these names that they can then use to sort of like. Slash. Yeah. Through Which isn't cooperative inquiry. No, I, I think it's, it reminds me of a word you used earlier, performative. I think it's kind of, it yeah. becomes very performative. Yeah. And it doesn't serve a function because it's just like other than being like, well, I know this word and I'm going to use yeah, it because exactly. I just, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. But and and then that becomes about ego and identity, and right. I think that's yeah. what the preachers on the green are doing. I think they're establishing their bona fides for themselves and their particular community because they're certainly not converting anybody. Their conversion, if they were truly interested in conversion. Yeah. 
they would not be attacking and yeah. turning people off and and making people feel stupid and, and making wrong. people feel yeah. sick to their stomachs. Um, and so I think we can be pretty sure they're not about conversion. But yeah. rather, so just to tie that together, you are the campus preacher in this analogy. Yes. Okay. <laughs> right. I just wanted to connect that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, John, thank you so much for talking to us today. It was really interesting. And um, we, we were very excited about you coming. Mm-hmm. So excited that we came about three <laughs> days early yeah. for this conversation. So uh, it's much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Having you. Having you.